My name is Dr. Ian Storch. I'm a board-certified gastroenterologist and osteopathic physician, and you are listening to DO or Do Not. If you're interested in joining our team or have suggestions or comments, please contact us at doordonotpodcast.com. Share our link with your friends and like us on Apple Podcasts, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, I'm Tiffany Carlson, a second-year osteopathic medical student hailing from the Midwest, and you're listening to Do or Do Not. On this episode of Do or Do Not, we welcome Dr. Justin Bogey. Dr. Bogey completed a residency in anesthesiology at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and subsequently a fellowship in pain medicine at Oregon Health and Science University in Portland. He is an Air Force veteran who is currently on staff at Gunderson in La Crosse, Wisconsin, While working part-time in his pain management practice, he is simultaneously furthering his education with a Master of Health Administration through Cornell University. In this interview, Dr. Bogey will tell us how he chose osteopathic medicine and why he decided to pursue extra time as a teaching assistant in osteopathic manipulation while in medical school at Des Moines. He will talk about his experiences during his time serving in Iraq and how he chose anesthesia and pain management as specialties. I hope you enjoy his story and journey in being and becoming an osteopathic physician. Thanks for listening. Thank you, Dr. Justin Bogey, for joining us today. Really appreciate your time. You're welcome. I know that you just finished with a patient and hopped right on to this call. So tell me a little bit about how your normal day looks like. You know, start in the morning when you wake up. I, I know we've shared a cup of coffee before. So you know, you probably have your coffee and then take us through uh, what your work role and responsibilities are during a typical or atypical day. Okay, excellent question. Well, I do pain medicine. So I usually wake up at about six in the morning, do all the usual stuff, get out the door and at work at seven. I run through my patient workload and that can be a full day of seeing evaluations, new pain patients and follow-ups or it could consist of doing procedures. I work Monday, Tuesday, and half day Wednesday because I'm pursuing a master's in healthcare administration in Cornell, and I used a military scholarship to accomplish that. But basically what I do is I go through my patient census, and then I do chart biopsies, especially on new pain patients. The field of pain medicine is similar to or analogous to the island of misfit toys on the famous Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer (laughs) yearly special. Um, We tend to get patients that other people cannot figure out. And so I I like to do a deep chart biopsy so I know what medications have been tried, uh, what treatments have failed, is there any psychological input that needs to be addressed, and then I do appropriate medical management or multimodal, multidisciplinary management where I might get one of my other pain colleagues involved or a different division in our neuroscience department, maybe a neurologist or physical medicine and rehab specialist. Um, some of those patients, if while I'm doing my exam, if I find an osteopathic diagnosis, a somatic dysfunction, I will chart that and then I'll do a treatment immediately on the spot. And then I will appropriately document that and then treat it. Can you, um, sorry to interrupt, but can you just kind of explain what a a somatic dysfunction is for our pre-medical students? Oh, sure. So it's, 
it's kind of doctor of osteopathy, medical legal ease term for, you know, I found a painful area in the body or an area of the body that is not functioning equally to the other area, if that's a hip or a SI joint or maybe a facet joint in the in the back. We do that during an osteopathic exam, which is done with hands, touching a patient, you know, a very uh, kind of intense musculoskeletal exam. And then when we find that area, go ahead and do some sort of treatment that may be what some people would be familiar with, a chiropractic type of manipulation, um, which is kind of a high velocity, high amplitude, kind of put your arm behind the patient's back and then do a thrust. If you've never seen an osteopathic manipulative treatment, it's similar, but sometimes dissimilar to uh, chiropractic, but that's the best way I would describe, you know, more of a traditional back cracking or neck cracking type of treatment. But in addition to that, you know, high velocity, low amplitude or high velocity, high amplitude treatment, we also do, you know, myofascial release treatments, massage treatments, strain counter strain treatments, which is basically short for shortening the muscle so it can relax. Um, you're trying to affect the Golgi apparatus, which is one of those fun words to say. And or maybe just some direct massage or distraction or compression techniques. It's it's really hard to describe the totality of osteopathic therapy in in a in a brief setting, um, but that's kind of my best attempt. Yeah, no, well, um, thank you for that. So you you're able to do that in the office once you find it, and then what kind of other things during the day? You're doing that deep chart dive, and then you're going to go see see your patient and do different procedures. So what kind of does the rest of your day look like? One of the areas that my salary is dependent on is putting needles in people's back and doing injections that other people aren't comfortable doing. So when I do injections, we might do epidural steroid injections under fluoroscopy, which basically means, you know, a military example would be I'm a sniper, but I need someone to help, you know, give me wind readings and to also visualize the target. That's the scout sniper. They work as a team. So I have a fluoroscopic assistant or a person from the radiology department that has a big x-ray machine. And then I can see where I am doing an injection to see if I can get benefit. So this is not shotgun, but kind of sniper spinal injections and or hip injections or joint injections to help diagnose and treat a patient's pain condition. Unfortunately, in 2020, the general public seems to think MRIs and x-rays make diagnoses, but they don't. They are an explanation of a picture of a person at a point in time. There is no functional MRI that points to the homunculus on the brain that tells a pain provider where the source of the pain is. We surmise that from the combination of patient history, so doing a chart dive, physical exam, Unfortunately, physical exam is wrought with sensitivity and specificity issues. And then, you know, I look at imaging and I lick my finger, point it into the wind, and I make a guess at where I think the pain is coming from. And after we do an injection, if the patient responds remarkably to that injection, it's diagnostic and therapeutic, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And then, so a homunculus, some people might not know, it's kind of like where different parts of your body show up in the brain, right? Exactly. It's the somatosensory cortex in the brain is where all pain is ultimately sensed. And medical students and, well, if anyone's taken anatomy, you learn about it in anatomy training. 
Um, but basically, scientists and physicians before us mapped out what part of the brain certain parts of our body are sensed in. And so I think it was the folks that created duloxetine or Cymbalta, which is a medication for neuropathic pain and also fibromyalgia. But they did a functional MRI study where they scratched people on the forearm, people who had fibromyalgia and people who didn't, and then found the homunculus lit up in the forearm region. But with people with fibromyalgia, it, it, it lit up exponentially. So it, it, it did two things. It shows that sometime in the future, we'll have functional MRIs and then I'll be out of a job because we'll know where the pain is coming from. But it also established fibromyalgia is not some sort of super tentorial, psychological only input, although there is some input usually in that realm. Um, but it is very much a biologic entity that has been proven objectively with imaging. So fibromyalgia is more of a central pain state, but it shows up in the brain as an exaggerated central pain state. Awesome. Thank you for that uh, description. So you're, you're only working two and a half days out of the week. And then what are you doing your full-time student the rest of the week then? Yeah. So I was fortunate to apply and utilize and get accepted with a military scholarship to Cornell University in Ithaca in their master's healthcare administration. It's an executive program. So theoretically, one could complete this 18-month degree while also doing full-time work. I was fortunate uh, enough to secure part-time employment so I could pursue the other half of my uh, intellectual energy and direct that towards this master's degree, which I've always kind of had an interest in being a physician for so long. I've had issues with administration in the military setting and private practice setting. And the adage, if you can't beat them, join, join them <laughs> certainly applies to, you know, kind of my motivation and where I'm kind of going off in a new intellectual journey or trajectory. Right. So you were also in, in the military early on in your career. Was that something that you always decided that, you know, I'm going to be like, when did you start becoming interested in medicine and then decide how you wanted uh, to become a doctor? I grew up in a family that had absolutely no ties to the military. I, in high school, uh, applied to and was not accepted into the Air Force Academy. I had a major knee injury in high school, and that was kind of the kiss of death as far as getting into the Air Force. But uh, I always felt, I don't know, some internal compulsion or drive to, you know, be a part of something bigger and better than myself. And after I got accepted into an osteopathic medical school in Des Moines, had the financial aid speech, you know, which, you know, scares people straight uh, into the realization that it's very possible you have a, a $100,000, $200,000, nugget um, that you, you will have to pay over your career. They discussed different options, American Health Service Corps, military, were some of the few options to help supplement or pay for that huge expense. And I basically took my letter of acceptance. I kind of interviewed a couple of physicians that were at a hospital I was working at in my hometown of La Crosse. I was doing cardiac rehab. And so I found a couple of ex-military doctors and the Air Force doctor told me to do Air Force. The Navy doctor told me to do Air Force. The Army doctor told me to do Air Force which I thought was kind of remarkable. You know, beggars can't be choosers. I applied to all three branches and it turned out the Air Force accepted me first. And so I went with the Air Force and they paid for medical school. The pound of flesh that they extracted back from me was a four-year active duty commitment where I was able to deploy to Iraq and be medical director of anesthesia during a very 
intense time around 2006 in Balad, Iraq. And you had a very nuanced multifactorial experience that, you know, I'm very proud of. But yeah, that, that's kind of the long and short history on how the military and I had a mutually beneficial symbiotic relationship. Well, thank you. Thank you for your service and also kind of explaining that there are other options besides loans to finance a medical school education. Going back, you know, prior to getting accepted into Des Moines, how did you become interested in medicine and like pursuing becoming a doctor? I've had a few major orthopedic injuries that kind of deflected me towards medicine. And that, that was juxtaposed to the realization that I, was, I had some talent in math and science. So I thought logically, how can I wield those talents, you know, to have a job that, you know, kind of forces you into lifelong learning. And, you know, medicine was always at the top of that job curiosity list. But when I was in eighth grade, I was riding my bike football practice and my football helmet got caught in the back of my bike and I went head over tea kettle into the asphalt and broke my left humerus, rather remarkably, compound fracture. And then I spent about four weeks in traction at the Gunderson Clinic Hospital System that I currently am employed at, ironically. And it was kind of that time that I kind of saw, you know, how serious my injury was, possibility of amputation, and then, you know, resolution and healing to the point where I played high school football, and then I played a year of college football. But I think that was the biggest deflection, having a major injury that required, you know, intense, coordinated, multidisciplinary, multidimensional, you know, therapy. But but you did see kind of how the body heals itself. Was that also kind of a crystallizing experience to consider osteopathic medicine or were you pursuing other opportunities? You know, the, the osteopathic medicine, I, I wasn't really aware at that time. It wasn't until after around college that I learned that there's, you know, two all, there's two ways to get into medical school, osteopathic medical school and allopathic medical school. So it was really after my journey of applying to, um, you know, different medical schools that I became aware of, you know, the osteopathic, you know, kind of philosophy and principles. I, I have always kind of had respect for alternative medical therapies. And so I had a master's in exercise physiology uh, before I applied to osteopathic medical school. So I thought it was kind of a natural maybe transition or, you know, kind of dovetailed nicely into each other. You know, my experience with musculoskeletal cause and effect, you know, with pain and, you know, kind of the, you know, benefit that exercise and certain exercise prescription can have in, you know, very many different aspects in a patient's life psychologically and physiologically. So it was really in that journey that I became aware of osteopathic medicine. And then in the hospital, I was working in, uh, sought out a, an osteopathic physician that was working in primary care and, you know, kind of job shadowed and, and got more excited about that medical school training. And so you did your undergraduate at La Crosse. Did you apply to multiple schools or just because Des Moines very close to Wisconsin, that was like the main choice? Good question. I did my undergraduate at University of Madison in Wisconsin. I did molecular biology. I applied to multiple medical schools, all MD, got accepted, was on the waiting list at a couple of MD schools, got into Grenada MD school, um, and was considering moving to Grenada. 
and was at that time one of the osteopathic physicians in the hospital I was working at, you know, kind of took me inside and said, have you considered osteopathic medical school? And so that realization, and then again, in conjunction with a, a master's degree from uh, UW lacrosse and exercise physiology, cardiac rehab, kind of really pointed me in the direction of applying to osteopathic medical schools. And I am a Midwesterner, so I did apply to mainly all of the Midwest schools uh, because at the time I had recently just gotten married and I had two twin boys, identical twin boys. So I had, I needed to maximize my social equity, uh, which is mainly in the Midwest in and around the lacrosse area. So you had two little baby boys that I've heard are grown and successfully launched in the world. So congratulations. But what kind of other things besides balancing family life did you do at Des Moines? I really liked osteopathic manipulative medicine. It was kind of an extra class. You know, the the, the osteopathic and, and MD medical school follows the similar pattern you know, the first year, a lot of the hardcore sciences, anatomy, physiology, second year, you start doing systems. And then third and fourth year, you do your clinicals. We have osteopathic manipulative therapy first and second year, and then you're left to do it on your own during your third and fourth year clinicals. After my first year, I just fell in love with it. I thought it was, you know, ancient wisdom that, you know, could be, you know, helpful. There has been some studies to validate when you touch a patient, there's a dopamine release. There's also oxytocin release which is important for the patient-physician relationship. Patients who like their physicians are infinitely less likely to sue uh, their physician, even if something wrong happens, and that's the physician's fault. And, And plus, you know, as a physician, we have a very sacred responsibility, you know, to try to help our patients do things maybe they normally don't want to do or are not interested in doing. And if you have a strong rapport with that patient, it's, it's infinitely easier to get them to do what's in their best interest. And so you were a TA, like a teaching assistant for the osteopathic department then? Yes. Yeah, so after the second year, because I liked it so much, became a, a teaching assistant to help kind of get other people excited about, you know, kind of the wisdom that is osteopathic treatment. I think there's some medical students that kind of poo-pooed and, you know, yeah, I'll get through this class, but really what I want to do is plastic surgery or dermatology or something, you know, but I would submit, you know, there is an, there, there is an ancient wisdom and there, there, there are many pearls in the, the training and experience of osteopathic medicine. And I, I think that time investment, the, the minimal time investment that I placed in it has rewarded me infinitely. I get to see patients for a full history and physical. And if I do uh, some OMT on them, you know, I get to bill, you know, a little bit extra. And, you know, it's a way to kind of set me apart from some of my other colleagues. It's, it's similar to being, you know, acupuncture trained or I, I think it's an alternative medicine skill set that, you know, manipulation has borne out some validity in, you know, acute pain states, at least in back pain and whatnot. And, you know, I just think it's a, it's an opportunity that you can use or lose, but you know, it, it can benefit in my mind, almost any physician in any specialty if they choose to invest in that skill set. Uh, now, when you were at Des Moines, was this just an extra thing and you graduated in four years or did your TA time tack on some additional time at Des Moines? I know it didn't tie in additional time. It, some medical students, if they want to just go into osteopathic manipulative therapy, uh, which I think is a separate, separate specialty, 
they do an extra year. So instead of four years of medical school, do they do five years? But no, I didn't do that. I just did. I spent extra time my second year teaching osteopathic and manipulative therapy. Thanks. So now you're in pain management now, but when you were at Des Moines, were there any teachers or friends that kind of inspired you when you were deciding what your specialty was going to be? I I was really gearing towards family practice, and um, we had a very good instructor at Des Moines, Dr. David Bosler. He was very excited about manipulation, and he was very skilled, and I think that that really helped inspire other others to go into that field. And I kind of wanted to be a old town country doc that, you know, would see people and then had another skill that could offer manipulation. Unfortunately, I did a rotation in anesthesia and I became instantly hooked by the procedures. I became instantly hooked by, you know, seeing anesthesia providers with patients and patients scared because they're going to go under and you know, I heard a, a physician say, you know, I'm, I'm your guardian angel. My only job is to watch over you. And that just, that just clicked with me. I think anesthesia is like the Rodney danger field of specialties. We really don't get a lot of respect because our patients don't remember what we do. But I can tell you, you know, starting an IV, talking to a person, touching their hand, maybe giving them a little benzodiazepine. I used to be a bartender. I like seeing patients comfortable and relaxed. And I like to alleviate fear. And, you know, that's, you know, maybe a part of why I went into medicine, but anesthesia, it harmonized with some of my, you know, internal motivations to relieve pain, relieve suffering psychologically or, you know, physiologically. Tell me about like, so you said you were a bartender. Tell me some of the things that you learned doing that job that has kind of carried on while you're taking care of your patients today. Well, it forces you to to comfortably and easily have elevator conversations, right? The social intelligence ability to start up a conversation or get a patient engaged. This is really important in starting and maintaining rapport with patients, being able to find something that you have in common and then kind of amplify or exploit that to create a trusting relationship. Again, it's I don't know of any job in the world where you get... 30, 40 minutes to see a patient and then convince them to do things they are just not interested in doing. And so, you know, working in the service industry, I've done everything from short order cooking to bartending, having interpersonal skills and the ability to have conversation, you know, with different personality types has certainly been an asset in my career. Yeah, definitely like having that personality and being able to establish a rapport with your patients to help them get better. So you, you're an anesthesiologist now, actually in pain management. So what did applying to residencies look like for you? Oh God, it was a typewriter. I'm, I'm dating myself. I, th- I think it was a typewriter. It certainly wasn't centralized. I, I, I looked at different anesthesia programs throughout the country. There are ones that have better reputations than others. I was mainly interested in how they worked the residents. There are some residency programs where, you know, you see turnover rates, residents leaving first or second year. That's a bad sign. Uh, that would be a bad sign with any job interview, additionally. Or if they overworked and took advantage of residency help, I mean, it should be no epiphany for me to, t- to say that residents are very profitable to hospitals. The government itself pays over $100,000 per resident per year for education. And I think after the first year, I think some of the 
medical data has shown that residents far exceed, you know, they become so efficient at, at doing certain types of medical care and offloading other physicians, um, they, they more than pay for themselves. And so knowing that there are certain residency programs that exploit and overwork their residents, and there are some that give them plenty of time to study for boards, you know, have a, a, a fairly reasonable work-life balance. And my, my research pointed me towards University of Wisconsin-Madison and their anesthesia residency. They had a high pass rate first time on the anesthesia boards, meeting and talking with some of the residents. They loved their instructors. They loved the time that they had off. They weren't overly utilized for call. And so that was ultimately, and they had a good reputation. The University of Wisconsin started the first anesthesia residency program for physicians in the world. So that's, you know, kind of a a nice history from that program. But during my anesthesia residency, I did a pain rotation where we did a celiac plexus block on a patient who had Uh, pancreatic cancer, which is a very painful cancer. And a celiac plexus block in brief is placing a needle in an uncomfortable part of the body just anterior to the aorta and then blocking or numbing a confluence of nerves that gives visceral innervation to the abdominal region. Cool Cliff Clavin fact, celiac plexus blocks in patients with pancreatic cancer have been shown to increase their survivability. So they get a little bit longer life with a little bit less pain, which I think is a nice ability to transition. But that's kind of when I got stuck on pain medicine. I saw a remarkable instant relief of a patient who was suffering from cancer pain, and they were able to decrease their opioids and have some sort of cognition and meaningful conversation with their relatives before they transitioned. That's a pretty powerful story and how you can impact patients' lives through, you know, learning very difficult procedures and being trusted with that early on in your residency program. So Madison, you know, state capital, Wisconsin, big institution. Did you look at other schools for like to apply for residency or like once you did that research, you were, you know, full speed ahead going to Madison? Full speed ahead going to Madison. One of the main reasons I picked Madison, I did a rotation in anesthesia at the Gunderson Clinic, ironically, the place I'm working at now. And I rotated with a family friend who did anesthesia. His name was Steve Carlisle. One of his brothers, Kevin, and I went to high school together. So, And he really took me under his wing. I was a second year medical student, and he let me do arterial lines, central lines. I did a cervical plexus nerve block. I mean, I he had me hook, line, and sinker on anesthesia. And and this is kind of like a little side pearl. You know, if you hook up with a person that really takes interest in you as a, you know, a medical student, there's a high likelihood that you will go into that specialty. And, you know, I just, I, I was really grateful because I was going through a tough time in my life. At that point, when I was applying to residency, um, I was going through a divorce and then twin boys. And so I really wanted to stay in the Midwest close to Madison because my twin boys were living in Des Moines at the time. And so uh, I was very appreciative that I had someone take interest in me. Dr. Steve Carlisle went to University of Madison for anesthesia residency and knew some of the people there. And so it was kind of one-stop shopping for me. It, it, it seemed like Providence. And so if Providence is uh, you know, turning its head towards you, you should probably uh, not look away. And so I'm very grateful that certain people uh, took time out of their professional lives to deflect me in the right direction. 
And, you know, as, as a response to that, you know, my karma full circle, I bend over backwards to anyone nursing people who want to go into PA people who want to go into medical school. I bend over backwards to help those people go into the healing arts. Cause I think that's, I think it's the, one of the most no, noble jobs you can go into is relieving people's, you know, sickness and suffering. So you went to Madison and, but you were still on a air force scholarship. How did that work? You know, once you completed your residency and you know, you, you didn't really actually have to look for your first job. No, you know, the good and the bad and the ugly of military scholarships is this. The good is they pay for the medical school. The bad can be, let's say you really want to do anesthesia, but the Air Force is like, eh, we don't need anesthesia this year. So that, you know, they do kind of a collective sentence of how many people that they have that are, that have active duty commitments. And if a bunch are about to mature and to separate, then they go, okay, we need 15 more anesthesiologists. And then the likelihood of the military allowing you to do your specialty is high. But if the military does not need an anesthesiologist or a urologist at that time, and this is important for any listener to know, the military kind of owns you and they will say you're going to be a general practitioner for four years, which in the Air Force sometimes can be great because if you get you know, hooked up with you know, a bunch of F-22 pilots, you're going to have a nice lifestyle. But it is a general practice, you know, commitment. And depending on how many years of medical school they pay for, in my case, it was four. So I had a four-year commitment. I did not have to pay a penalty for doing a pain medicine subspecialty. But with the Air Force, I had to ask permission to go into anesthesia, and they gave it to me. And then I had to ask permission, and I had to compete with another couple of active-duty Air Force anesthesiologists for the pain medicine fellowship. And then uh, once I finished the pain medicine fellowship, I went to the mothership for Air Force medicine, and that was Wilford Hall in San Antonio, Texas, where I did a four-year active duty payback for my HPSP scholarship that the Air Force gave me. So you mentioned earlier, would you mind kind of telling us about your experience during the surge in Iraq as a pain manager? Sure, sure. Very surreal. Let me paint the picture of Iraq. I didn't see one cloud. I saw one bird try to fly into the sky and it went from the solid phase to the gaseous phase. It just sublimated. No, I'm just joking. Uh, Every day was 120 degrees and I never saw a cloud. That was a big culture shock. I remember walking to the tent hospital in Balad, Iraq for one of my first shifts and the sirens went on and we we had uh, had a, we're under a mortar attack. That was a very uh, surreal kind of experience because it you know it really told me I was in a war zone. I knew I was in a war zone, but really didn't know I was in a war zone until you know someone was throwing you know mor- mortars at us. Fortunately, the insurgents weren't too good at doing mortars, so it was more like they would get lucky, but they didn't have very much precision. Balad Air Force Base was a Saddam Hussein's former Air Force Academy equivalent, and so that was of course a prime piece of real estate for the United States to take over. And so we ran the whole hospital and different other sections of the military ran the base. But it was an enclosed base, we had a swimming pool, we had a, a level one, we were the only level one trauma center in the whole theater, so it wasn't in Baghdad. They had sent patients to us because we had neurosurgeons in our group. But we had two shifts, day shifts and night shift. I was director of the anesthesia department. We had, I think, five anesthesiologists and then I think 10 certified nurse anesthetists. And then we did uh, primarily trauma anesthesia. So, you know, you could be sitting 
on the base or eating some food and then pagers go off and then everyone sprints to the tent hospital because we have people coming in on, you know, medical Blackhawk helicopters that are in dire straits. This was kind of right after the Fallujah uprising. So, you know, you can't see what explosions do to the human body in the United States because there's no equivalent training. So, you know, it was a challenge to anesthesia providers and surgeons. Most of us were young and just out of our training and, you know, seeing kinetic explosive trauma to human beings is, you know, challenging uh, mentally, physically, and psychologically. To top it off, the surgical units that we were in were kind of hardened little metal boxes that had air conditioning units. But in the middle of the day, when temperatures outside would be 130, 140, they wouldn't keep up. So we did anesthesia basically in a sauna <laughs> and um, we would have to, you know, regularly broken out or people would have to bring in Gatorade for us. So it was surreal, but, you know, reactionary and met the mission and you accomplished the mission with the, you know, services and, you know, materials that you had. But to this day, I just don't like saunas. <laughs> I just, I, I can't stand the feeling of having, you know, kind of a slippery, slimy layer of sweat on my body. Does not sound fun. And I think there's actually a picture of you floating around the internet, frying an egg out there as well. Yeah, I want to show my sons how hot it was. So there, there's a little bit of history behind that because that, that picture isn't entirely truthful. First of all, try getting a raw egg from a government employee on a military base. You know, they just, I had to really tell them I was going to use this egg and throw it on the cement and watch it cook so I could tell my boys how hot it was and not ingest it and, you know, get some E. coli and then, you know, the health food worker person would be in trouble. But basically I, I got two eggs. So egg one was, you know, the 1.0 version, cracked it, put it on the cement, and then I just watched it. And it really started drying more than cooking. So I took the second egg, cracked it, put it on a plate, put it in the microwave to kind of get it going a little bit. Then I took that egg and put it on the ground and, and then we took the picture. So. <laughs> so it's like, so you were able, I mean, even in the midst of, you know, hot, horrific conditions, you're taking care of American men and women and the civilian populations, you, you sort of found that work-life balance there as well to send things back to your sons. Yeah. Yeah. We had, even though all the other NATO countries had the ability to have alcohol and, uh, you know, that's a whole nother sidebar, the ability for primates and humans to alter their consciousness in stressful states, you know, I think is important. Uh, but because we are the United States, we followed Muslim law. And so we would, we would enjoy non-alcoholic libations. I think St. Pauli girl, non-alcoholic was like three bucks a case. So I always bought that and we'd put those in refrigerators, but you know, the anesthesia and the surgical staff, we would socialize. There was a swimming pool on base that was manned by lifeguards from the United States that made like $100,000 a year because they were being a lifeguard <laughs> in a war zone, which I thought was just awesome. But, you know, that there are definitely worse places in Iraq that we could have been. But it was, a, it was an interesting juxtaposition of super intense horror and trauma. And, you know, and then weaved in with, I'm going to go to the swimming pool. We also had a movie theater with a balcony. So I remember seeing Ta Talladega Nights, which today and to date is one of my favorite movies because it made me laugh so hard. And, you know, what a gift of having a gregarious, you know, paralytic laugh in the midst of such horror. But yeah, we tried to make as much of a work-life balance as we could, you know, under the conditions that we were exposed to, for sure. 
So besides being, you know, an anesthesiologist in a hot box, can you tell us a little bit of what has made you successful? Like what is your superpower? I would say my ability to create rapport with my patients. I think it is a accumulation and summation of my prior work history, prior successes and failures. And, and one thing I kind of pride myself on, I've taken extra classes in motivational interviewing, which is basically a technique. It's not like being Yoda or, you know, like CIA social engineering, but in kind of a way it is, you know, like I, I alluded to before, we have a very short period of time of trying to convince a person to trust what you're saying and then to, to act on, you know, recommendations that maybe the patient isn't otherwise interested in. And I think that's one of my superpowers, the ability to meet a person, talk to them, find a common thread, exploit that common thread for the interest of the patient. And so you mentioned before, like establishing that rapport and, you know, and the, and the power of human touch and the, you know, the physician's touch and the ability to help heal the body. So do you have any final thoughts on osteopathic manipulative medicine and how you incorporate it still today? Oh, sure. Well, uh, you know, like, uh, here's a great example. Saw a guy yesterday, did a nerve block on him. He's got some instability in his lumbar spine. So I'm sending him to a neurosurgeon for surgical solution. He's got true instability. I just reviewed with him because I have had shingles and I suffer from post-repetic neuralgia. That was a gift that Iraq gave me. I had shingles in Iraq, (laughs) left-sided like T7, 8 dermatome. It could have been worse. It could have been in the face, but anyway, Uh, So this gentleman, smoker, he's already had, you know, his carotid arteries worked on. He's at high risk for COVID pneumonia and shingles. So I'm like, you know, and and the nice thing about the Gunderson health system, we have Epic EMR, electronic medical record system. And it has kind of like a little summation in the bottom right-hand corner that says preventative medicine. This guy needs this, 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 and this. So I'm just like, hey, talk to me about your pneumonia vaccine. When's the last time you got that? And he's like, oh yeah, I'm due for one. I got to talk to my primary care doc about that. And then then I said, you know, how about the flu shot? Do you get that every year? Oh yeah, I should get that. And I, I, I said, it's available now. Try to get it as soon as possible. There's really no penalty for getting it early. It probably, you know, gives you an advantage. And then we finally ended up talking about the new varicella or shingles vaccine, which is much more efficacious. And so I just kind of put a little seed in his brain to bring that up to his primary care doc. But that is, you know, I don't know, uh, you know, osteopathy, we were kind of taught as, you know, more holistic and whatnot. I think that holistic mentality has bled down because I see my medical doctor friends doing that also. And it's bled down into, you know, certain electronic medical records. So, you know, I'm kind of seeing stuff that was maybe less popular from the MD side when I was going to medical school, but it certainly is more pervasive now. But I would say that's, I think it's an advantage for osteopathic students because that concept is promoted early and often. And I think it's true wisdom, you know, always thinking of, even though I subspecialize in pain and that's not my realm, I still treat the whole patient and I try to be as holistic in my recommendations as possible. So you really enjoy being a pain medicine doctor from the brief time that we've spent today. Would you go back and pick something else? And if you would, or maybe you wouldn't, but uh, would you try something else now if you had the time? Well, my dad did radiation physics. So I thought radiation oncology would be a really cool or hematology oncology. Again, 
I don't know why I pick some of the most broken human beings, but that's kind of what pain medicine is. I, I think maybe if I did cancer treatment uh, in any way, shape, or form, that would that was something that I've always kind of wondered about. I love doing procedures. I love manipulating, you know, needles in parts of the human body to relieve suffering. That sounds kind of sadistic, but another area that sometimes I, you know, kind of looked at enviably is interventional radiology. I think some of the procedures and some of the treatments that they do are also kind of cool. There isn't as much patient, you know, long-term patient interaction per se in that specialty. But again, I, I love doing procedures as, as much as I like having the human interaction. I, I like doing procedures, technical procedures. Thank you. So we're just about out of time today. And I know you got to get back to your busy schedule. So thanks so much for taking some time to speak with us on the Do or Do Not podcast. So leaving us, you've mentioned some really great mentors, you know, your dad, Dr. Carlisle. What throughout your whole journey becoming and being an osteopathic physician, what was the best piece of advice that you've gotten throughout this journey that you always think back on and then you try to pass on to others? Live within your means and you'll always be wealthy. The, the problem with medicine is we go without for so long and it's the nature of our career to work longer than 40-hour work weeks. I would try to set your lifestyle so that you're always wealthy, even if you work full-time in a big city that doesn't pay as much because you want to be near family and friends, or you want to work part-time and pursue other areas. But you know, there's kind of a pandemic or epidemic, maybe, of physician burnout. And I think it is because you know we go for so long, and then when we get out of the starting gate, we buy a big house, buy a couple of big cars, and now you have a, a monthly payment you have to come up with whether you like your job or not. And having some sort of financial freedom to you know, remove your stake and go somewhere else you know, psychologically is healthy. There are, I don't know what the statistics are on how many jobs people change out of residency, but out of the military, you know, it, it's been studied and most people don't stay in the same job right after they get out of the military. So what I assume probably similar with, you know, medical students or I mean, residents out of residency, but I would plan my life accordingly to that wisdom, live within your means and you'll always be wealthy and really protect the work-life balance. So your career doesn't cause a divorce or a family, you know, a lifelong family dysfunction. Really good wisdom for our listeners, especially we also have a, an earlier podcast that we kind of talk about finances with Dr. Stork and the white coat investors. So thank you for just mentioning the importance. And I think you're living it right now because you're working part-time, having time for your family, and then also pursuing further education. So thanks again for your service and sharing your story with our listeners. We, we really appreciate your time. Oh, thank you. It's a, it was a pleasure. I appreciate it. This concludes our episode of Do or Do Not. Send all inquiries, comments, suggestions, and even let us know if there's someone you want us to interview to do or do not podcast at gmail.com. Don't forget to like us on Facebook at Do or Do Not Podcast for updates. If you enjoyed our podcast, please share it with your classmates and administration. We have plenty of more interviews lined up, and we're excited to share them with you. This is Tian Yu Shea. Thank you guys so much for listening to Do or Do Not.